We actually had a great example of that in Arizona with a candidate we tried to recruit in 2018. And they said, no, it was too late, too much at that time. And then they ended up running in 2020, came short, didn't win. In 2022, they ran and won. And they're the only Democrat in that county now in an elected position. So time, giving it time. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Lauren Gepford, is the Managing Director of Contest Every Race and Rural Power Lab at Movement Labs, a movement incubator and digital consultancy. Lauren is a political organizer and manager. She worked her way up to executive director of the Missouri Democratic Party and has expertise in political technology and data as well. If you're interested in how she built her career and what's happening at Contest Every Race, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Lauren at Contest Every Race. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Lauren, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Yes. I'm Lauren Gepford. I'm based in Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm the managing director for Contest Every Race. I got into this realm of down-ballot candidate recruitment and help after the Obama election. I was really motivated to get into politics. My local Democratic County party was having a happy hour. I was 19 at the time, and I took my mom with me because I wasn't sure if I could go to a political happy hour being underage. And the local Democratic Party ladies just really sucked me in and didn't let me go. And it's had me interested in Democratic County Party politics and local politics since. And after I went to that happy hour, I started interning to flip the Missouri House that year. We were a couple seats shy of being in the majority in the state legislature, which is incredible to think, now looking at how we're in the super minority. And we, we failed that 2010 year. It was my first election and quite the bloodbath. And I've just really enjoyed working with those who are closest to the action on the ground, especially in underserved areas, like rural areas of the country and my state. It's been a bunch of different campaign cycles, but I've mostly worked in Missouri. I've been the executive director for the Democratic Party there, as well as the data director and state legislative campaign manager. I um, was a data director on Phil Bredesen's U.S. Senate race in 2018 in Tennessee. I did a stint at NGP Van as an account executive and a couple other campaigns and organizations in between. But it's been two and a half years that I've been at Contest Every Race. And this has been just really my life's calling to be able to work nationwide to recruit down ballot candidates and support Democratic county parties and especially in rural areas. 
this is very much a great place for me. Were you born and raised the whole way in Missouri? I was. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. I've lived in Kansas before as well. The Kansas City area is on the state line. So these days, I like to say that Laura Kelly, the governor of Kansas, is really my governor because she's much more friendly to uh, my causes and stances than the elected officials we have in Missouri. Um, but I did. I lived in D.C. for a little while and in Nashville when I worked on that race. But otherwise, Missouri's been home. What was it about family upbringing that pointed you in this direction? Oh, yeah. Well, my dad was a criminal defense attorney. He passed away about two years ago. But growing up, my parents got divorced when I was very young. And I think it was being raised by single parents, both of whom were self-employed, that really had me interested in like entrepreneurship. And campaigns in themselves are a very entrepreneurial field where you're creating a new organization or cause and starting it up, shutting it down every cycle. But there was also some time that I spent in Mexico in high school doing mission trips that really got me interested in why certain people are dealt a different hand in life than others and got me thinking more about this whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps and what does that actually mean and is it possible? And so my my interest in politics was really kind of cultural around equality of how different folks are raised and the advantages that they're given in society. And that's partially what got me interested in local politics, too, is just because it was the most close to home, you know, being involved in my state representative races. Those are people I know, see and, and love in many cases. And so the closeness and helping others is really what motivated me. And oh, about my dad being a criminal defense attorney, he very much operated in the barter system. So like somebody would commit a crime, they lived with us for a month and did household chores to make up for him representing them. And there's this everyman mentality that there's nobody, whether they have an addiction problem or are poor or whatever, is was just very drilled into me that there's no normal out there. The little guy is usually the the person that I'm on the side of. It seems like a potentially daring thing to bring people accused of crimes into your home and to trust them with chores. Did, did you ever run into trouble with that or was the faith that he had in people rewarded? I would say sometimes he got a little taken advantage of and that's something that his family pointed out. Honestly, he dealt with addiction himself, and I think he had more in common with his clients than he did with other attorneys in the field. And that very much instilled in me this kind of rebellious, like, let's argue every side of a situation type mentality. He was just very frugal. It could be a car that he bartered or physical labor. And I think that was part of where how he met people where they were at and helped kind of pull everybody up regardless of how much money they can shell out for legal representation. Attorneys that have billboards for their services were uh, something that he constantly made fun of. And he felt like representing those who are in need was really um, a mission and a calling rather than a way to get rich. And uh, I mean, that showed in how he lived as well. But it definitely ingrained in me that I mean, somebody, if somebody robs a store, honestly, the first thing that goes through my mind is like, why did they have somebody that they needed to feed at home rather than like, oh, let's lock them up. You didn't mention what your mom did. 
Yeah, she was a real estate agent and then does home mortgages. So kind of in a similar vein, she has spent a lot of time helping people repair their credit so that they can buy their first homes. And that's also been a calling for her. The two of them, both being self-employed, made them really hard workers. Like my mom went back to work. Gosh, it was like a week and a half after I was born. And they both worked full time. My dad up until a couple weeks before he died. But my mom in that industry, too, has taught me a lot about frugality and budgeting. I was like an eighth grader telling people how to come up with a budget, which has served me really well in politics, especially on the managerial side. When you were talking about that first state legislative midterm, the 2010 midterm, and referred to it as a bloodbath, but also that it got you hooked in politics, I wondered about that connection because... That was a rough election across the country for Democrats and not one that I would think would necessarily create the kind of experience that would make someone addicted to the game. Explain that. Maybe I'm just like a glutton for punishment. I'm not (laughs) totally sure. There's just something, you know, kind of how sports gets your endorphins up and you have this sense of team mentality. I think being in competition, you know. (laughs) Yeah, competition. And I felt connectedness with other people my age, whereas I didn't always feel that way. Um, I went to private Catholic grade school and high school because the public education system in my area was unaccredited and I got a scholarship. I mentioned that because I was mostly around folks that were of a higher socioeconomic class than myself through that experience. And when I got into politics, I just felt like I, I found my family and like I was at home and found my people. And so I think that that is really what kept me hooked. And I love talking with young folks getting into politics now. I'm now not of the young. I've disqualified from the young Democrats of America age at this point. And what brings people to it is usually some form of hardship that they've overcome and wanting to give back to change the landscape. And that just makes me feel at home. As you've mentioned, you've been in and out of the Missouri Democratic Party, starting as a volunteer early employee in your career, and then all the way to executive director. The chair and the executive director are the kind of heads of the party. Can you tell me about how that party evolved over that time and kind of trace what it was like to enter it at different levels as you did from time to time? Oh, yeah. It's changed so dramatically in my time. When I first worked for the party in 2010, We had a bunch of money. Every one of our statewide elected officials, but one was a Democrat. So we had Governor Nixon and Senator Claire McCaskill. And we had a whole program, like literally a staff of 10 folks in 2010 who were dedicated to just working on state representative races and swing districts. The area I covered was in Northwest Missouri, and I had some great candidates I worked with That is crazy to think about how that was possible to have 10 people being local campaign managers. The whole state party staff, House caucus staff put together now does not equal 10 people. As we continue to turn redder and redder from 2010, let's say we spent, I don't have these numbers handy, but I'd like to say $10 million, $20 million from the state party. That's gone down to more like $2 million in a good year. And that's partially because not having statewide elected officials, we don't have the powerhouse fundraisers out there helping bring in the money. In 2016, when I worked for the party and I was the data director, 
we were once again trying to do some work on our state legislative makeup. But at that point, it was getting out of the super minority. And we, we're still in the super minority now, I'll just spoil that story. But over the last couple of years, from 2010, we took a real decline. We lost like 30 seats that year in the state house. We have been gaining seats since 2016, which has been great. It's, you know, one at a time, but we're just one seat away from those, from being out of the super minority now, which is really great because we lost the governorship. And so having the ability to be able to um, block a vote and not be in the super minority is really important for us, especially with the different issues that have gone on here. You know, in Missouri, we keep passing progressive issues at the ballot box, um, medical marijuana, minimum wage increase, Medicaid expansion, ethics reform, but we just can't seem to elect a Democrat statewide. And Governor Nixon was really our last person that was strong on that. I think we're getting there with trying to find the next person. We have the House Minority Leader, Crystal Quaid, is running for governor this cycle. And she very much is cut, like she's from rural Missouri, she's from Springfield, rural adjacent. She's able to reach Missourians in that Nixon-esque kind of way that is not just a city person or a St. Louis or Kansas City person. We have a lot of geography fighting that goes on in the state and she's able to represent everyone. So I'm feeling good about um, the progress that we've made the last couple of years. But overall, the, the main gist is that every time I came back to the party, we had lost more and more seats and more and more funding. And Missourians, the Missouri Democrats still feel like we're a democratic state. And I feel like we're in that hump right now where people are like, why aren't we winning? And it's hard to say, but it's like, we haven't been winning for a while. This is not new, but it feels like every time we lose, it's a, a new wound being opened. In a state like Kansas, that I'm just right across the street from, they had that downturn and it felt like all the Democrats banded together to overcome and they defeated Brownback and elected Governor Kelly and Congresswoman Sharice Davids, etc. And it felt like they had that period where they just weren't doing well and Democrats banded together. And I'm hoping that we reach that period in Missouri, but I think we're still in this kind of eat each other moment about why it's happening. And that's part of the reason why I'm frankly, I'm glad to be out of Missouri politics, very like solely focused because it's just been a really difficult time for Democrats. And we've got a lot of ground to make up that we've been gradually losing since 2006 or so. The reason for the initial decline too is that we implemented term limits, which uh, went into effect in 2000 and come 2000, Two is when uh, Democrats lost the majority in the Missouri House, and then it's declined since then. How about your jobs along the way? Did you imagine early on or at what point did you think, I could, I could run this party? Oh, you know, I often thought about ways that it could be run better, but usually they were unrealistic. Well, at least I came to find out later. I highly recommend the people who are very critical of the Democratic Party infrastructure should all go work for the Democratic Party. It is totally different once you're on the inside and the amount of coalition building and consensus making that's required amongst such a big tent party really it takes some amount of skill. And I'm not saying I'm the most skilled at it, but it's one of those skill sets that you really have to do it to learn it. I guess I did think I could run it. My heart has always been in Missouri politics and in the ED position, you get 
criticism regardless. It's kind of part of what you're signing up for. And so I think the biggest thing is having thick skin. And it did help me grow thicker skin during that period. If I could do it over, I'd do a lot of things differently. And that was kind of what I was known for is just telling people how it is. I don't really like to blow smoke. Sometimes I had one, I got quoted in the press at one point saying we were going to lose the next Senate election. This was on my way out of the party. And I mean, we did. I'm not great at lying. Um, So that's not necessarily what you need in the party. But I also think it is partially what some party officials need more of is just reality and being humble and connecting with folks. You mentioned the kind of skill of coalition building. If you were going to tell someone who was going to have to work in that kind of role, what, what advice would you give them? Tell everybody everything you think they may ever want to know. You don't want to leave anybody out of the loop. And if you meet someone, make sure that like if you have that one-on-one with them or a phone call, remember, like write it down. That's a person to follow up with. Tell them about your next plan. Really, Rolodex maintenance is a big part of it. And in a role like I was in, I may talk to 500 people a week. And so being able to keep track of those and like say this person would be good on this team, that person on that team, committee chair, donor, volunteer, etc. Figuring out where people can best help that motivates them and then getting them to that place is what will make you most successful in building a coalition. And then just hearing everybody out. There's oftentimes in politics, different groups that work on different issues together, say like abortion recently, those coalitions have, you know, at the table, you've got Planned Parenthood and NARAL and other different types of groups, and they may not all agree. And so setting the stage for we're not going to agree, and it's okay to not agree, but we need to come to a path forward. It's like a facilitation technique is really important and helpful and just kind of setting the ground rules for checking your ego at the door because we're all trying to swim towards the same goal, but we need to like figure out who's going in which lane. And if you can figure out which lane you're in and that lane is clear, then we're all going to be happier. When I talk to a lot of activists or people running organizations that sit outside the party, there's been an increasing skepticism for a lot of years about the party itself. I find it always a little bit peculiar because I actually consider those people part of the party. You know, even if they don't want to label themselves that way, they're part of the coalition that's trying to win it really for one team, even if in some ways the party is a subset of the team, right? How do you think about that relationship between the institutional party and, you know, the party in the electorate or the party among activists? I've seen that a lot too. Um, I think that the party infrastructure, the one that would be behind the closed doors, your DNC meetings, where you've got only your elected folks, I do think it would be helpful if we broadcast what's going on there more, because there is a lot of mystery around how the sausage gets made from the intra-party political standpoint. And I mean, frankly, it is boring for most people. But I think that if we make it a little bit more well-known, then folks will feel like they actually are a part of the party or have the ability to be a part of the party. There's simple things, even like, you know, every presidential election cycle, there's delegates that are elected from each state who go and, in this case, vote for Biden. But when it came to Hillary and Obama, that was a huge delegate race. And folks 
oftentimes don't know how to become a delegate. And so even just like getting advertising out there, like come to your caucus meeting, trying to make more of an Iowa type hype around it in states where it would be less sexy per se, can help people see what it means to be involved in the party. And so I believe in advertising more on just party function awareness. And I think that that helps. I also would say to folks, sometimes when folks would criticize the Missouri Democratic Party, depending on who it was, it's like, I totally hear, you know, where the critique is coming from. You have great ideas. It would be great to have your help doing X to help fix it. And, you know, sometimes people just want to complain and they don't want to actually help. And that helps figure out what category they fall into. Um, But a lot of times the biggest critics are the biggest helpers, too. Uh, Frankly, we saw a lot of this just around the Hillary, the Hillary Bernie race, the Sanders Clinton race. Um, A lot of the folks who got involved for the first time motivated by Bernie Sanders are still involved now. Actually, one of my local ward committee people got involved in 2016 on behalf of Sanders. He's now like the data volunteer leader in the area and has become a fixture of the democratic institution in the local area, even though at one time he was critical of it. And so I think the more folks have the opportunity to get involved, the more they'll realize when they say, oh, the Missouri Democratic Party caused us to lose, it'll feel to them more like as a Missouri Democrat, we lost and that's not good. What happened in Missouri in getting redder over the time period you've talked about happened in Arkansas and Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia and kind of across that border state swath. Do you understand why that part of the country has moved so much to the right, at least in the state legislatures and in the statewide elected officials that they've chosen? Yeah. I mean, I'd also put like Ohio and Florida in that category too, that aren't as Midwestern, but from the analysis that we've done, and I've been a part of a ton of different analysis groups on this, it seems like it's a combination of a bunch of different things, people moving and congregating in certain areas, certain amounts of gerrymandering or district changing over time. Like in Missouri, we picked up some districts because after redistricting, they became more favorable. You know, people move. And then just how we've seen like our program, we focus on on rural areas across the country, which we've seen shift dramatically more red. And I mean, part of the reason for that is the demographics changing. But I also think that it's partially our messaging on the Democratic side and getting a little away from values-based messaging that I think resonates more with folks who are not entrenched Democrats, like talking about how Democrats stand for family values and everybody being able to to make it in life and storytelling, which Obama was just so great at, versus quantitative talk. You think we didn't campaign well? I think that Whether it's that or if it's the way the media covers campaigns, I think it's both. And I do think that as, you know, this rise of the internet and people being just more disconnected in general throughout the country, it's a bunch of different things. It's hard for me to pin it just straight on campaigning because I I personally do think that a lot of times it's how that campaigning gets regurgitated and where the person's absorbing the information. I fully believe in door-to-door operations and direct mail and direct voter contact, but there is a good portion of the electorate that's getting its information from social media or cable news, and that is harder for us to control. 
I mean, an earlier Democratic Party, some people would say, was more conservative in certain social issues, maybe more liberal economically than now. Is part of that, that mix changing? Yeah, and I think that's the case with both parties, too. I mean, I do think Democrats have been pretty consistent in what we believe in, but sometimes I feel like where we're missing the ball is that we may like pass an infrastructure bill and talk about how many billions of dollars will go a certain place, but we need to tell the story of how Joe Smith's road got repaved and that allowed him to do XYZ easier and brought more time for him to spend with his family. And so I think it's partially that we've maybe just aren't as great of storytelling anymore. And um, folks, it's harder to connect with people these days and feel that kind of emotional connection to what you're voting for at the ballot box than it was in past generations. So you have another sort of strand in your work, which is the data director strand. So you did that for for the Missouri Democratic Party, you work for NGP Van, which is a software technology uh, for campaign. Are you familiar? Company. I've heard of it. And then for Bredesen as a data director, how did that sort of work come to you? What's the attraction there? Why are you good at that? And tell me a little about that part of your life. Well, I lost my iHeartBand shirt, or else I probably would have worn that today. But, you know, being an organizer, which is where I pretty much got my start on in politics, you use Van a lot. And I just, I have a knack, I guess you could say, for CRMs and database systems. I'm just completely self-taught. I was ex- executive director for a county Democratic Party, the Jackson County Democrats in my home city of Kansas City. And in that role, I wore a bunch of different hats and I became kind of known as the van expert. And so when the state party was looking for a data director, they reached out to me and that's how I made that that hop into that job. But one thing that's going really well for Democrats, I mean, amongst a bunch of things, but kind of the internal baseball side is that the DNC and the whole Democratic ecosystem have really improved all things data over the last 10 years. And I think if you were to look at the headlines from like 10 years ago, you'd see like Republicans, big data is outpacing Democrats. And we've come a long way. And part of that is just the amount of opportunity to learn the skills. So like I went to a Wellstone data training. I went to several DNC data trainings. There's really great infrastructure to get folks who are interested in data up to speed on things like writing SQL and data visualization. So I was really fortunate to benefit from just having an inclination towards that kind of work and then being offered support and building my skill set. And while it's been several years since I've actively done any data work, it's been a really great background to have because our staff at Contest Every Race and Movement Labs, we've got data folks on our team. And I'm more of a data translator type role now to take the technical into the implementation phase. Yeah, it's really really helpful in getting our work done and being able to say, hey, go, you know, pull this from BigQuery or whatnot and have the kind of foundational skill set. And I also think it's something that anybody can learn. And like I said, there's so many opportunities out there. I um, young folks in politics who are interested in making the jump to data are some of the folks I love talking to and helping make connections for the most. I feel like I should ask you about that, that time at NGP Van since 
I founded the NGP side of that company and you're there after I had left. Tell me about what that year was like, because it's quite, it stands out in your resume as like a different sort of year. Yeah, I was really excited to, that was the first like private company I'd worked for. And I was on the sales team. I was an account executive, which for those who haven't worked at software companies means mostly sales. I got a reputation for trying to be a little too helpful using the tools, like rather than sending people to client support, I often tried to help them myself. But it was a great place to work. The culture at that time, at least I can't speak to since then, but was really welcoming. And it was my first time working in this open office environment. And it felt like I was at like a tech startup, although it had gotten pretty big at that point. I mean, I think it was like 100 employees or even larger now. But Lou Levine was the was a great guy to work with there. I know you know him and I still get to see him when we meet up at DNC and ASDC conferences. He was my first hire. I know. Yeah. yeah, he gave he does the history lesson when you first start. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was great to get to know the tools even better. At that point, we were launching NGP eight from you know seven to eight, and um, I mean, I guess I've seen every version of the software, not the original one you built, I'm guessing, but people are really committed to the NGP software, and I am one of those too. And folks talk about tracking their campaign compliance in any other format. I can't help but sell them. And I was that way beforehand too. Um, But it was great to get exposure talking to a whole bunch of different campaigns. I covered 15 or 20 states. California and Texas were my big ones. And it got me really familiar with down ballot campaigns. And I also sold to the federal level in those states too. And I enjoyed it because I got just a lot more aware of technology in general. You know, there's PDI in California, and part of my mission was to sell van rather than PDI in California. That was really eye-opening and successful in some regards, too. The mayor of San Francisco ended up using van. That was a big win for me that year. And I just very much believe in the democratic ecosystem being cohesive, and I think that that's part of my motivation to work at Van and part of the success there. Yeah, it was a great place to work. I was there for a year or so before I went on to the Bredesen campaign. And while I was at NGP Van, I took a couple of data trainings. It was known that I'd just gotten into the data field and wanted to continue growing that skill set. So it was nice to be more of a frontward facing person while also learning some of the behind the scenes stuff at the same time. What was the best data training you went to? I would say the Wellstone, which is now Repower, but I went to a Wellstone data training in 2017 in Arizona. And it's funny, um, somebody I met at that training actually referred our data director who works for Contest Every Race, where I'm at now, to me. And I stay in touch with folks I went to that data training with. It was great because of the hard skills covered, as well as the applicability. A lot of times learning data in a vacuum, like just learning how to write code, but not having use cases for it or real data sets. It really helped to put those things together. And the DNC has had great trainings too. You know, I've talked to Doug Jones, who was Senator from Alabama and then ran for re-election, and also to someone recently in Indiana, both of whom said the data in the state van was crappy. Like the phone numbers were out of date. And I am puzzled as to why that could be and how that 
transpires. Do you have a sense of why that would be in a system that's supposedly used by most of the candidates on that side and is kind of a cooperative enterprise in keeping data right? Yeah, I typically go straight toward explaining why they may have been using the wrong data when the right data exists within the system, which is not always what people want to hear. But there are a lot of cases where somebody will have multiple phone numbers listed on the file and someone using VAN doesn't realize when, say, putting together a virtual phone bank or printing call lists that they should populate multiple phone numbers and have it show the primary, secondary, et cetera. And so they end up just keep calling the wrong numbers. That's like a pretty common thing we see. But then also, I think it's just because of the quality of available commercial information and the different vendors out there, like the DNC and Target Smart, et cetera, are all buying phone lists from a variety of different vendors. And the level and quality of that data just changes over time. I'm curious to look into more if it could be something with transiency around phone numbers or cell phone shifting, et cetera. But I I presume they're probably talking mostly about contact information, like phone numbers on the file is the common thing. It sounded like that. And it it puzzled me not being close to the van stuff at all. Interesting to hear your take. Yeah. It also just seems that there's fewer good phone. Yeah, there are fewer good phone numbers for folks. And there's a I'd say that there's an increasing problem in getting in contact with people in general. What led you to leave the Missouri Democratic Party and join Movement Labs? Yes. Movement Labs is our our parent organization and Contest Every Race, the program I run, is incubated within Movement Labs. Well, for one, after the 2020 election, our chair was not running again. And we're electing a new chair, and it is very, very common in party politics when a new chair is elected, a new executive director comes in. And so I stayed on and helped train the next ED and did the transition and whatnot, but it was pretty mutual that I wanted to move on. And I was really interested in doing work that was multi-state because I'd had so many cycles of state-specific work at that point. I'd worked with Contest Every Race while while I was at the Missouri Democratic Party. We partnered with them for candidate recruitment. We recruited about 50 candidates with them that year. And then when I was leaving, they asked me to do some uh, focus group type work about a new rural Democratic Party support program they were building. So like hop on an interview with one of my now colleagues to just give advice on building this program. And then they're like, oh, do you want to come work here? It's like, okay, great. <laughs> So basically just kind of turned a relationship into a job, which is very common in politics. And with the Missouri Democratic Party, I was there during the height of COVID. I do not recommend being an ED during a pandemic, (laughs) during a presidential election year. But to salvage some of our in-person activity with the Missouri Dems, people are probably tired of hearing me talk about this, but I did a yard sign tour where we took yard signs around rural Missouri in a pickup truck and gave them out at parks and stuff. And I used texting to tell people, hey, come to the park and pick up your Biden yard sign. Hit 35 rural counties. We had like a line of 100 people in the Missouri boot heel, home of Rush Limbaugh, to pick up a yard sign. And people in line were crying. They were like, we didn't know that there were these other Democrats here. And yay, we get a yard sign. We've been waiting forever. And that just got me really motivated in this idea of rural Democratic visibility. Like these yard signs literally have 
visceral emotions that are evoked in people. And I would have never thought bringing a $5 piece of cardboard to the boot heel would have people in tears. And so when Contessa Race reached out about the rural Democratic County support program, I was just like, yeah, I would love to do this work. This is exactly what I've been facing in Missouri. And rural Democrats are so overlooked. I mean, I was sitting in a position where the the Democratic County parties in the boot heel, the reason they cried is because it was October and they should have had signs so much sooner. But it took me, the ED of the party, renting a U-Haul and having signs printed to get them to them. And so I was really motivated at that point to give more attention to the thousands of overlooked rural Democratic County parties. And so how has it been first doing that rural work and then moving to contest every race? The Rural Democratic County Party Program is a part of Contest Every Race now, which is wonderful because Contest Every Race focuses on recruiting candidates below the state legislative level, your county commissioners, local mayors, school board. And those are the races that the Rural Democratic County Parties are always focused on and are more like most motivated by. They're running those races. So Combining those two programs, which we did at the beginning of this year, has made for a ton of synchronicity between down-ballot candidate recruitment at scale. We worked in 42 states this year and Democratic County Party organizing. We were able to give county parties $500 a quarter for them to recruit candidates, train candidates, knock doors for candidates. In 2022, we supported 72 county parties across six states for the 2022 election, and they knocked 175,000 doors, which like when you put on your coordinated campaign director hat or your field director hat, the amount of work that the county parties did for the $500 a quarter we gave them, it's huge ROI. When you look at the cost per knock, the cost per connection, it's amazing. These organizations are usually running off of if they have any budget and do any fundraising, it's just a couple thousand dollars. So $500 a quarter is like tremendous. They opened offices, printed lit, et cetera. How can they open offices and print lists with $500? You know, a lot of times the offices in rural areas are actually pretty inexpensive or they get them get them donated. In Kansas in particular, around the abortion amendment that was on the ballot last year, we had three or four county parties open offices, and it was like $500 for three months of an office. Usually a friendly supporter has a storefront on the town square. So uh, the money does stretch far. It's all volunteer organizers too. Um, but things have been going well. When So we piloted the county party grants program last year and had great wins across those six states. And then this year, we've expanded it. I said we worked in 42 states. In 30 of those, we give money to the Democratic county parties and rural areas. So we've got quite a bit of coverage. We're supporting 325 county parties now. And like in September, they recruited 500 candidates. And so they they really do get a lot done. And the money incentive goes a long way in motivating folks. And I think establishing a sense of buy-in that it's not just figure it out on your own, but here's a little bit to help you get there. Are you still texting for recruitment or what's the breadth of how you re- recruit? Yeah. So program has the, the recruitment side and then the county party or county team. We do have some 
teams that aren't just county parties. We've got recruitment and then the county team support with the recruitment. We use texting to do that. When I first heard of this program, I was like, what? We're going to text to recruit candidates? It finds people that would have never thought about it before. And, you know, you have to ask someone seven times for them to consider it. And you get the first one out of the gate pretty easily. It's really easy to send people resources. We have webinars and candidate coaches that connect with them. There was an article written in the Kansas City Star about this. One of the reporters got a text asking if they're interested in running and just kind of played along with it. And we basically walk people through which offices are on the ballot in their area. And the cool thing about that is that we're not just telling them any office to run for. We're telling them the offices that the local county party wants to recruit for. So we're not recruiting in primaries. We're only recruiting where candidates are actually needed and wanted. And we give them information on how to file, where to file, what the office does, connect them to their county party. This is all over text. But then we also have a phones program with our candidate coaches. We did something like 500 candidate coaching calls just last week. It's a very scaled up program. And those candidate coaches are usually former local campaign managers, They come from a political background and they help candidates or prospective candidates think through running. We reached over the 250,000 mark this year for how many prospective candidates we have found. And there's 500,000 and some change local races in the U.S. Our research and ballot readies research has shown we don't contest, meaning no Democrat runs in 75% of those. So we've got about 350,000 races that we need to find candidates for every four years. And so the texting is a way to do that at scale because this is a large scale problem to solve. And we've had um, 5,700 candidates recruited and filed and who ran to date. 40% of them win, which is great. Again, these are seats nobody would have run in otherwise. We've had randomized control trials throughout all of this work too. Um, to show that it really is making that impact. 58% of our candidates are women and people of color as well. So we're showing that women and people of color can run and win for office in rural areas. We've had a really good year. During the um, last elections, last, well, earlier this month, we had the Ohio... The November 7th elections. Yeah. Yeah. And we all know that abortion went our way in Ohio. We had a couple of counties that we worked with there that increased Democratic vote share based on who voted for Trump to who voted for abortion by like over 20%. Last cycle also, we did a RCT with Donald Green and a couple other professors and measured the impact of our county party grants program on congressional vote share. It'd be great to redo the analysis with more counties because this was based on 72 counties. We believe that this county party grants program increases congressional vote share by 3% more Democratic based on the study that the professors did, which is a great sign for us. So we're basically leaning into this theory of local first, boots on the ground first, funding and supporting the local candidates and the local county parties. And we know that there's a big problem out there since 300,000 races aren't being contested. Do the Republicans do anything like this? Yes. (laughs) Um, I think they have been for quite a bit longer because the reason so many are not contested is because they're the only ones running. Well, I would think that since they're at the moment pretty dominant in rural areas, it's easier for them to contest them if they're more likely to win. 
Yeah, they yeah. don't have as hard of a time. Their bench is deeper, I would say. And I think that the whole right infrastructure of all the different you know, think tanks and whatnot have been working on this issue for quite a bit longer than we have. What do you think it takes to turn around rural America? I think a lot of long-term investment. It won't happen overnight, and I imagine this will be a decades-long endeavor. I think that there's more attention toward, from the Democratic side, more attention toward improving our presence in rural areas. We have been inching back since we really hit rock bottom in 16. And I think that it's showing up. Uh, showing up really cannot be understated. And the texting that we provide all of the local groups that get our grants, you know, it's kind of like a virtual yard sign of sorts. They're able to use that. One of my favorite county party chairs in Brunswick, Virginia, Celine Montgomery, when we text for her, she doesn't sign it as the Montgomery County Democrat. She signs it as Celine. And people know her, like literally the whole county knows her. And so I think giving tools to progressives and rural areas to get the word out and be more visible is um, a huge first step. And that's really what we're covering and hasn't been covered by others. But there's other stuff like when big campaigns decide where to spend their money, they're mostly putting it on TV, mostly in urban areas. Like, why don't we increase that budget to be 5% for rural radio instead? And so I do hope that we'll see other organizations, campaigns, nonprofits, et cetera, just having more of an increased strategy to reach out to rural areas. I'd like to say Contest Every Race has shown that it makes a difference and that if you try, you can gain some vote share. I hate to talk about rural Democrats as though they're just vote share, but we've run the numbers because we know people want the numbers and the strategy works. And so I like to broadcast that it works and more people should do it. I mean, if you're doing all this testing on an ongoing basis, you're learning some things about what, what works, what works better. What have you changed over time to be more effective? Oh, a lot. We test everything. When we're texting to recruit candidates, we send about 25 different text messages from initially asking them asking them if they're interested in more information through to like, here's a PDF of the form you need to fill out to file. And we're constantly A-B testing that. An interesting thing that I found is that sometimes more lax or less aggressive messaging, like, are you interested in running sometime? versus like, will you run for this next year, seems to get more people interested because it is a big commitment to think about running for office and you don't just change your mind or decide in a moment. So long-term relationship building, it's part of the reason why our program is year-round and we've been consistently working with these counties and state parties for years on several years now is because it's the more times, you know, you may not run this time, but you'll run next cycle. We actually had a great example of that in Arizona with a candidate we tried to recruit in 2018. And they said, no, it was too late, too much at that time. And then they ended up running in 2020, came short, didn't win. In 2022, they ran and won. And they're the only Democrat in that county now in an elected position. So time, giving it time is partially what I think has helped work and know that the bottom's not going to drop out. What's happened a lot in rural areas with the Obama campaign in particular is they came in with a lot of support for local organizing and then 
election days there and they're gone and the org- the OFA organizers have left. And um, so we build long-term infrastructure. We're giving folks the skills to continue organizing if we're not there later too. And to teaching them the practices of pulling more people in, training leaders up to be able to take on more jobs. Because as you probably know, a lot of the Democratic County Party leadership is a little on the older side. And so there we're working with them to find younger leaders who can help take on some of the organizing work too. You can't help but be working towards 2024 with the presidential going on, but what are your goals for 2024 and what are your goals for beyond that? Yeah, for 2024, we are zeroing in on defeating Trump and fighting back on Trumpism. I mentioned this year we worked in 42 states. Next year, we're going to work in about 30, but we are taking a ton of our emphasis and time and putting it toward the battleground states. We just know that we need to go all in there in order to ensure that we don't have Trump as president again. And then there's a variety of different gubernatorial U.S. Senate congressional races that are that we're focused on in those states, too. So we're going deeper in battlegrounds. We talk about net votes at Movement Labs a lot. A lot of our work, we figure out, like, will this tactic, we test everything, figure out if the tactic will help us actually net votes for all these RCTs and then double down on those tactics. So I think we'll be doing candidate support. We'll continue with our county party work. This year, the county parties were focused a lot on candidate recruitment. Next year, they'll be focusing more on direct voter contact and supporting those candidates, door knocking, phone calls. A lot of that work also coincides with what other campaigns are doing too. So the parties that we're supporting are a lot of times the backbone of the volunteer infrastructure of other campaigns. But yeah, defeating Trump and then having wins up and down the ballot with that. We believe in reverse coattails. So where there's local candidates running, that'll help Biden. And so we're going to be focusing on helping those local candidates succeed and be strong via their party infrastructure and helping them directly. And that'll lift the the tides for the Biden vote as well. What about beyond this coming? Oh, yeah. After 2024, um, I think depending on how things go with the election, um, we will say, say Biden wins. Are you optimistic, by the way? Yes, but I also was talking to a reporter who was talking about how she called it for Trump winning before. And I was thinking about how we're so in denial of that happening. And so I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I feel like what we've seen in 22 and just this November shows that things are looking good. I think Biden's a very strong candidate. Knock on wood. I hate to predict at times. But yeah, I think that the the down ballot candidates that we'll be supporting, there will probably be about 1,500 of them that we hope to recruit and who will be running next year. Those 1,500 down ballot candidates could be to make it or break it and lifting the top of the ticket for Biden because they really help denationalize the Democratic message and put a real face to what folks are seeing going on in D.C. and connecting it to what's happening at home. What should I have asked you that I failed to? That's a great question. Maybe about where to donate. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, actually, um, what, one question that occurred to me is like, there are these rather large pots of money that are at play, super PACs, the Biden campaign. There will be a lot of resources like you referred to earlier that go into often messaging, television, online, things like that. If you could draw 
some percentage from those big pots and place it with what you guys do or with what other people that are allied to you are doing? What do you think is underfunded in the movement or in the Democratic Party or progressive side of politics? Um, it's really not just touting my program, but I think funding toward Democratic county parties is so, so sorely underfunded. Like I said, I'm a former county party executive director. Think about it right now. There's these 3,500 county parties in the United States. They're responsible for organizing delegate selection, getting the delegates elected and sending them off to the very expensive national convention to go vote for Biden so that he can technically run as president. And there's no group out there that supports those county parties other than us. I mean, the state parties do. I'm a very sympathetic and empathetic towards state parties, having done multiple tours with one, um, but they're underfunded too. And it's not me knocking on the state parties. It's just these are local groups that are tasked with literally doing the most important thing, getting delegates so that Biden can be our nominee. And they get no funding from anyone. It's changing with our work. I want to give a shout out to the Wisconsin Dems and the um, Michigan Dems. There are other state parties that are giving money to their county parties and supporting them. But otherwise, there's there's no national support and there really should be. Yeah, I, I bet that's 100% true. Well, it's really an honor to talk to you. I was interested to hear your story and I'm glad you are where you are fighting the fight. Anything else you want to say? I really appreciate you having me on. Like I said earlier, longtime listener, and I, I appreciate your coverage of what we do in this field and that you shine a light on it and let us learn by you having guests on. And thanks for creating a great software long ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was Lauren. She is at movementlabs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.